0: If you would, keep your Bibles open there to Acts chapter 5. We'll walk through most of that chapter together this morning. If you're new to Poplar Spring, uh, we're studying through the book of Acts. uh, Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we've landed in chapter 5. And what we've been seeing as we've been studying through the book is what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to come and the people of God to go. uh, For the Holy Spirit to fall upon His people, and then in obedience to Jesus' command for the people of God to spread Uh, The gospel to every part of the world. And as the gospel advanced in the first century, we've seen incredible things. Even so far in our study through Acts, we've seen people healed immediately. We've seen the church grow in leaps and bounds. uh, In number, but also in faith. And the way that they're walking with one another. And with other believers and in their their gospel belief. Um, But you can bet that in the midst of that, Satan didn't like it. Uh, He was not happy with what was going on. He wants nothing more than to destroy, to discourage, to distract the people of God. And so we saw in chapter 4 the first sign of outward or outside um, opposition. Pastor Michael preached through chapter 4 for us, and we saw in that text that the religious leaders of the day were opposing the apostles, in particular in chapter 4, Peter and John. Uh, They were made to stand trial. At the end of that trial, they were given a a tongue-lashing And told to cease in the preaching of of Jesus. Last week as we continued in our study. We saw in the first part of chapter 5. An example of opposition from inside the church. uh, Disunity. um, Greed. Dishonesty. uh, And that producing disunity in the body. In the people of God. This week we'll continue to see how Satan attempts to bring hostility. Opposition against the church. In a second wave if you will of outside opposition. This time though. He ups the ante a bit. Um, It's not just Peter and John this time, it's all of the apostles. And this time it gets violent. And so we'll see that in the text as we continue this morning. I think there's much for us to learn here, church. Um, The reality is that you and I will face opposition on account of the gospel. That if we live out our faith as we've been called to, if we take a stand for Christ, if we take a stand for the truths of God's word, we will be opposed. And hostility can be expected. The question is, how will we respond? Will we respond in faith and in obedience, as we'll see the apostles do? Or will we cower in fear? And so I think this morning that, um, that this is a timely message for us in the world, the culture that we live in, the day and age that we live in. And if you think that you're safe, I, I think sometimes because maybe we don't live out our faith, um, publicly at least, in some of the ways that we see the apostles are, We feel like we're safe from hostility and opposition that may come in today's world or in this nation. But if that's where you're at, you need to think again. Uh, D.A. Carson has said that there have been more people martyred on account of their Christian faith in this last century than in the first 1,900 years of the church's history. That's an incredible thing to think about, that in the last 100 years more have died than the entire length of the church's existence. It's a growing and spreading thing, even in our nation. At this point in the U.S., I don't think uh, it it would look like it does, at least in Acts chapter 5. In our day, and in this nation, it looks more like intimidation or threats or negativity toward anything that would appear Christian. One example, recently in the uh, Chicago Tribune, there's a section in that paper called Ask Amy. and You can write in, readers can write in. One person wrote in and said this, Dear Amy, I'm curious to know what you think of someone asking a semi-stranger, what church do you go to? Or even worse, do you go to church? It seems intrusive, as intrusive as asking, how much do you weigh? Or how much money do you make? Or are your kids gay or straight? Maybe churches today are trying to grow their memberships, but the way I was raised, someone's personal relationship with God was personal. I know people like to categorize, but to me that question is just rude. Am I out of step? It's the culture we live in, that if you even ask someone if they go to a church, that's an intrusion of their privacy. And you can expect, if if you are going to live out your faith publicly, you can prepare for similar responses when you share that faith, when you take a stand for that faith. Now, of course, the Christian faith is not a private faith. Jesus was crucified publicly in front of all, for all to see. It couldn't have been more public if he had been crucified in a mall during holiday season. It was a very public display, a criminal's execution. Not only that, when he rose from the dead, he commissioned his followers to spread his fame publicly. And they began to do that. And this is what believers are doing in Acts. And we'll see that that hostility they faced this morning was a result of their obedience to share Christ, the greatest news that anyone could ever receive. And so without a doubt, this morning in this room, there are at least a couple groups of people. On the one hand, I know there are those of you in this room that have been believers for some time and you've suffered on account of the name of Christ. I've heard from you, you've told me accounts where you've suffered maybe because of a stand you took for your Christian faith, maybe with, at work or with family members or with friends. In some way, you've made your belief in Christ public and you've been mocked or intimidated or humiliated, wronged in some sort of way because of it. But on the other hand, there are others in this room, I'm certain this morning, that you would say you wouldn't consider yourself at this point, at least, a close follower of Jesus. But you're here, aren't you? <laughs> And you're at least asking the questions. You're at least curious about this Christian faith, about this belief system. And one of the things that you're asking, one of the things that you're questioning, even in your own heart as you sit here this morning, is what would happen? What would happen if I committed seriously and publicly to being a follower of Jesus? What would happen? What would that look like to my peers at work, to my family members? And if I were a good salesman, I would look at you and tell you that nothing would happen. I would look at you and tell you that everything will be fine, everything will be perfect, everything will be good, and and it'll be nothing but blessings that come into your life, and nothing but good times. And to be sure, this morning, friends, there are churches and preachers that will tell you just that. But I won't lie to you and I won't sugarcoat it for you. Our text today shows us that you can expect to be opposed, you can expect hostility. It's not always easy. It's often you may be ridiculed, you may be the butt of office jokes, you may, you may not be invited to some events or gatherings. But here's where you need to land today. Count the cost. Count the cost. Is comfort in this life worth an eternity of torment separated from a holy God? Is it worth it? And that's where we land in the text today. So hostility, opposition on account of the gospel, how will we face it? Before we see the hostility that we're met with in Acts, that the apostles were met with, though, we do need to note the blessings that they experienced as well, because that's for us in the text as well. And so sort of three points this morning. The first one will be quick. The second one's where we'll spend most of our time this morning. And then the third one we'll make as we're wrapping up this morning. So three points. The first one, and all of them deal with this issue of hostility, opposition on account of the gospel. So number one, use seasons of blessings as a tool to stand against opposition that'll come. Use seasons of blessings as a tool to stand against opposition. That will come. Let's look at the text together, starting in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." It'd be a shame for us to rush into the hostility and opposition that we're about to see in the text that believers were met with without first noting the blessings that they experienced as well. Friends, when the gospels preached, people believe the good news. People are healed. People are restored. People are added to the church. And the text was, it tells us this morning that this was happening more than ever. They're experiencing revival. They're experiencing the flame of the Holy Spirit spread throughout all of Jerusalem into these nations that were surrounding them as a result of people going. You see all the good things that are happening in these verses. Look at verse 14, the the humble were being saved. Verse 13, many were drawn to Christ by the power and love of the church. The humble are are loving one another. Uh, Verse 12, they're unified. The text says that they were all together, that they shared life as we've already seen in Acts. They were caring for one another, even if it meant they had to sell their own property to do so. Uh, Verse 15 and 16, they were being healed. Verse 16, again, they were delivered. These are incredible things taking place in their midst. You can bet they were taking note of it. So listen, church family, there's a principle for us here. One of the ways that we face hostility, which is coming in the text, is to remember the goodness and the blessings of God from an earlier season in life. This is Psalm 77 that Michael read to us this morning in worship. That we would remember how good and how faithful he's been. And I'm not a journaler. I'm not, I don't keep a diary or a journal, but this is something that's helpful and practical for us to do. Whether you do it on paper <laughs> physically write it out, or you store it up in your heart and mind, think about and store up God-did-something moments in your life. Times when you know without a shadow of a doubt that God was clearly working, He was speaking to you, and you heard His voice, and you were communing with Him, you were fellowshipping with Him in a way that you can no doubt, no shadow of a doubt in your mind that you were walking with the Lord, and He was blessing, and He was using, and He was doing things in your life. Friends, those times, those moments will enable you to fight for joy when the storms come. When you can't even lift your head, you can look back in your heart and know that he was walking with you and he was faithful and he'll be so in the future. The Spirit of God will direct our hearts back to those moments in times of need and, and bolster, give us an assurance, a confidence in his power that he'll get us through whatever this storm is, whatever this opposition is, whatever this hostility may be. So we see that. Those times of blessings are a tool for us. Second, though, and this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. The second point is this. See opposition and hostility that comes against you on account of the gospel as evidence of God's love for you. See opposition, hostility that comes against you on account of the gospel as evidence of God's love for you. Let's continue reading in verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to, pre- to teach. Notice we're going to walk through this section of the text. I'm going to point out to you several things that God gives you In the midst of opposition, that demonstrates his love for you. The first one we see here is his presence. When you give yourself to suffer for the name of Christ, he gives you himself, his presence. Now in the text, an angel of the Lord appears. The subject of angels is a complex and and weighty subject in scripture. Hollywood has not helped us by, by glamorizing, romanticizing the idea of angels. Pop theology stuff that you'll read On the shelf at at airport bookstores, they do not help in understanding angels. It's been mythologized and, and, and made lots of money from this topic. But the Bible has much to say about angels and their work among us. It's not something we should avoid. Psalm 34 verse 7 shows us that an angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear God and delivers them. They minister to God's people. They're messengers from God to his people. Here in this text, they physically altered the outcome for these apostles. In verse 19, they show up, open prison doors, and bring them out, right? Such that the guards did not even appear. We're going to see that later in the text. The guards didn't even know it had happened. So angels are there and, and, are, and are caring for them. I don't know what it'll look like for you, church family. I don't know exactly what it'll look like, but I do know that Hebrews 13, teaches us we entertain angels, and most of the time we're not even aware of it. So whether it's physical like that, whether you're suffering for Christ no physical angel shows up and delivers you from prison doors, you can trust that his presence has not left you. He's with you. He's given you himself. He's sovereign and he knows everything that's coming into your life and nothing comes into your life that catches him off guard or catches him by surprise. And so whatever you're dealing with, whether it's at work or at home or with family, know that in the midst of that opposition, he's not abandoned you. He's with you. He loves you and he's walking with you. He's given you himself. Notice what else he gives you though. As we continue in the text, he gives you clarity. Look at verse 21. It says, When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now that's a big deal. These guys walking into the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem and preaching Jesus, who'd just been killed by the way, as the risen Jewish Messiah. That's a big deal. It's an even bigger deal That they're doing that in the Jewish temple and they're preaching Jesus as the risen Christ when they've been warned by the religious leaders of their day not to do that and they've been thrown in prison for doing it anyways. And then they get out and they go back and do the exact same thing. But here's the reality. The Lord has spoken to them. In verse 20, the angel says to them, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life here's the reality. They saw, they heard the command of God. They knew the source of the command was God himself. They had been given incredible clarity to understand that they had no other option. God has spoken. His word is good and sufficient. And if he's told me to go and teach, it doesn't matter what just happened in the past. And it doesn't matter what the Sanhedrin has said or may do again. I have no choice but to obey. That's supernatural clarity. When you would risk your life to do what you've been commanded to do because you know that thing you've been commanded to do is from God himself. You ever been in the midst of a storm? In the midst of opposition? Facing hostility? Suffering? And you know that you know that you know that God has spoken to you and he's given you supernatural peace in that moment and clarity? Such that you couldn't even imagine. You couldn't even imagine that you would even have had to go through that storm, through that difficulty. Maybe a, a diagnosis or a family member that's dealing with something. And you couldn't even imagine that a year ago that you would be going through that thing. But in that moment, though you couldn't have imagined it, you have a peace. That just, that just passes all understanding. That you can't even imagine how you would have that kind of peace in that kind of storm. It comes from clarity that he gives. It's not that you conjured it up. It's that he by his Spirit gives us clarity in the midst of the storm, and it demonstrates that he loves us. Let's keep reading and see what else he gives us in those times. Look at verse twenty-one. So now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. And so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words and were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council that the high priest and the highest priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We see the third thing that God gives us in times of opposition. He gives us supernatural courage. The high priest gets here and he says, Hey, brothers, what's this all about? You're teaching in this name. We've told you not to do that. And yet, here you are, you've done it again, you've filled all Jerusalem with this teaching. And further, your teaching and your, 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 what you're teaching, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Notice that twice, these cowards wouldn't even mention the name. It's just this man. This name that you're teaching in. This man's blood that you intend to bring against. They won't even say his name. You ever experienced a time when you know God gave you supernatural courage? That you went through something you could have never imagined. Somehow you get through it. Well, you didn't. God did. God did. And this goes against everything in our culture. Our culture, the world around us, would tell us we must muster up some kind of courage in these moments. That we have to have confidence in ourselves, self-confidence to, to go through, to get through whatever life throws at us. That we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and we crawl through the mud and the muck. And whatever life throws at us, and that's fine and that's dandy until that opposition and that suffering comes that's so overwhelming you have nothing left in the tank. It's all, it's all fine when you, can, when you can do that. But what about when that time comes and it, and it hits you like a shot to the gut and you, you literally have nowhere to turn. There is no head to lift. The opposition is so heavy and so weighty that you have nothing left to give. You are done. What then? It's then that we realize it can't be us. That it's God who gives courage, sustains boldness, allows us to face opposition, not with self-confidence, but with with God-confidence, with confidence in the one who gives us courage to endure. He bestows that. It's a gift he's given, and it shows his love to us, that he would give us confidence, courage, to walk through even the darkest of storms. Well, there's another one I think that he gives us. Here in the text, it's pretty clear. As he gives gives us words to say, if you continue reading in verse 29, High priest has done his accusing. Verse 29, Peter answers and says, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. What incredible truth. What, what precious verses these are. Incredible in the moment and for the context in which they were given where God gave these words of the apostles and they spoke a bold answer, a courageous answer before all the people that they were standing on trial before. They're incredible for us now as well. If you're wondering who Jesus is, if you're a seeker this morning and you're asking spiritual questions, you're wondering what the Christian faith is all about, whether or not Jesus is worthy of surrendering your life to, friends, look no further. These verses answer that for you. Yes, Jesus can be trusted. Yes, not only were these men witnesses of the resurrection, they saw it for themselves, but more than that, the Holy Spirit was witness to these events. God himself orchestrated these events and carried them through. These verses are incredible in affirming to us the truth of the gospel. These verses are also incredible when you consider the human instruments that were speaking them. This is Peter. Yeah, the, the same Peter that denied Jesus three times during Jesus' most intense suffering, that Peter is the one speaking these words. The same Peter who wouldn't even profess that he knew Jesus in front of a young girl, a teenage girl, he denied, I don't even know that guy. That Peter is here speaking these words. And here's the reality, Jesus knew Peter would deny him. He told him such. Jesus also knew that Peter would have this moment and this day coming where he'd have an opportunity to speak boldly the gospel. Not in his own strength, but in the power of God. If you go back to Matthew 10, you can jot this down. Matthew 10, verse 16. Jesus is teaching here. Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and cunning as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Like Jesus knew what he was talking about. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles and they will deliver you over. But don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Yes, he knew, he knew that Peter would deny him. He knew that Peter would not only deny him once, but three times. But here's the reality Jesus also knew that it would all come full circle, and Peter would be standing before the men who were responsible for carrying out Jesus' death, and he would have an opportunity to speak the words of life, the gospel, and he would do so, not because he was strong enough. We've already seen that he failed, but because the Spirit of God was speaking through him. He'll give you words, even in those moments, to speak. I think so many believers today remain silent about their faith out of fear of not knowing what to say. I'm scared it's going to turn like some kind of debate or something and I'm I'm not going to know how to answer. Friends, listen, on the authority of God's word, you can rest assured that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, he'll give you words to speak. Open your mouth. The gospel is powerful even when we're not powerful communicators. I've seen it over and over and over again, even through some of you. That will be serving together on the mission field somewhere in in Uganda or Malaysia. And and you may not know in that moment. You've studied, maybe you've read, you've thought about, what will I say in that moment? Never shared the gospel with a soul in your entire life. And then you're standing before a village of people and He gives you the words and you present the gospel. That's not you. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. Because He's given you words. Friends, God has used donkeys and evil kings and worms, and even plants to communicate his purposes. Do you think he can't use you? Do you think he won't use you when in his word he's told you he will? In that moment, give you words. That's what's happening here with the apostles. It's not Peter. It's the Lord. Your testimony. It's powerful. Speak it. Use it. Allow God to use your story, what he's done in your life, to to embolden other believers, to convict the lost. Imagine how incredibly powerful it is when, you, when you'll speak your testimony and say, hey, I received a cancer diagnosis, but I can face it because I know Jesus. Or my family's falling apart, but I can, I, can, I can face it because Jesus holds me. Or I may have lost my job, but I don't have to live in fear because Jesus cares for me. Do you know how powerful those words are to someone, to a person who's asking the most fundamental questions about life and death and Jesus? For you to say, hey, brother, I've been there. Let me tell you, I can face that because Jesus has won the battle. He's, he's defeated my greatest enemy in death and hell. It's powerful. He's faithful to put words in your mouth, so open your mouth. He gives presence. He gives clarity. He gives courage. He gives his words. Notice one final thing in the text that he gives us. Demonstrates his love to us. He gives us Gamaliel's. Saw some heads come up. Gamaliel, look in the text with me. Starting in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Before these days, uh, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. Just so that you know, there's some debate among scholars as to whether Gamaliel was actually giving godly wisdom here, whether he was being used of God to to give give godly advice. Because some would say, they would notice and say, hey, he didn't outright say, these fellows are right, leave them alone. He didn't say that. If he were a godly man, a wise man, he would have said as much. On the other hand, others will say, what Gamaliel said, does say here, keeps the apostles' necks from the chopping block, at least for right now. His word spared them. But I don't think the point for us this morning in Acts chapter 5 is to determine whether or not Gamaliel is a good example for us. I don't think the point is to figure out whether he's a godly man with wise wisdom. I think the point here on this day is that God gave Gamaliel to the apostles on this day for this purpose. God didn't want for the apostles to be slaughtered on this day. Now, their deaths are coming All of them will die and eventually be killed for preaching Jesus. That's going to happen, but not today. Not at this occasion. Not on this day. And so he gives Gamaliel. He gives Gamaliel, and his wisdom there spares the lives of these these men, these brothers. You and I have Gamaliels in our life, and we see them throughout the history of the church. Men and women that are not necessarily followers of Jesus, but are advocates for his people. Give you some examples. Benjamin Franklin, believe it or not, never professed faith in Jesus Christ, but he hosted George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers and revivalists to ever live. Thousands of people saved through the ministry of George Whitfield. He helped to to fund an orphanage that Whitfield started in Georgia. Thank God for Benjamin Franklin. Thomas Jefferson never professed faith in Jesus Christ, but as a founding father, he desired, he Worked to create a nation where Christ followers could worship in freedom? He thought that was important. Praise God for Thomas Jefferson. Gandhi, not a Christ follower. But he worked tirelessly for justice and he worked to see the lives of countless people spared from oppression and from death. Thank the Lord for Gandhi. Here's the reality, and you ask, well, how does all of this apply to me? What, we're talking about opposition and hostility that we face on account of the gospel, and so how does any of this make sense for me as a Christian living today? Friends, listen, if you have a job where your boss, your superiors, have not ever asked you to do something illegal or unethical, praise God for them. They're a Gamaliel to you. They've never put you in a place where you had to choose between your Christian belief and, and, and what's right or wrong in losing your job, your livelihood. You may not agree with them when it comes to the most fundamental truth that we believe, namely that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, but they're a good boss. Thank the Lord for them. That's a gift to you. Your parents. Maybe your parents weren't believers. They were not Christ followers, but they taught you valuable lessons about life. They taught you you how to work, how to to love well. Those are chameleos to you. And we can thank God for them. Here's the point. Because God is truly sovereign, because he knows all things and he's working in all things, you can count the cost and consider what suffering may come into your life on account of him, on account of the gospel, and you can trust that he'll demonstrate his love to you in countless ways that he will deliver you through suffering, oppression, and hostility. It may be through angels. It may be through having the right words. It may be through courage. It may be through advocates that don't even believe in Jesus. But in his sovereignty, he can use any number of those things. It's not your time to go. If he's not calling you home, then you can trust he's leaving you here on this planet to continue to, to, to raise the anthem in the banner of his name and the glorious gospel that you've been saved by. And in all of that, he's showing that he loves you. So all of that is point number two. See opposition, hostility that comes against you on account of the gospel as evidence of God's love for you. Here's the final point, and we'll wrap up this morning here. Not only should you see opposition on account of the gospel as evidence of God's love for you, we should see opposition on the account of the gospel as an opportunity for us to show our love for him. Let's continue reading in verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worth... Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Friends, here's what happened. The Sanhedrin, by God's grace, listened to Gamaliel. They didn't execute them. They didn't kill them on this day. But they did flog them. And the idea here in the text is most likely that they received the 40 lashes minus one that was permitted in the Old Testament. These men would have looked like raw meat after this beating. Their backs would have been laid open in one big continuous open wound. After beating them to within an inch of their lives. They then ordered them. They gave a dec- an authoritative declaration. You shall never speak in the name of Jesus again. And look what the apostles did. They rejoiced. They rejoiced. The flogging brought them joy. The order gave them boldness. And so the apostles left that scene with holy, joyful boldness to obey God rather than men. And look at the source of their joy. They were not simply overjoyed and filled with joy because they were alive, because they escaped execution. Look at the source of their joy. They were overwhelmed with joy because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That was the source of their joy. That, Lord, you would let me, you would allow me to suffer on account of your name. Wrap your mind around that this morning. They were worshiping God, thanking him in praise that they were allowed. They were counted as worthy to suffer on his behalf. Oh, friends, that we would understand that. That it's a joy. That it's a joy to suffer on account of Christ. This is Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for his namesake. These are not just empty words for the apostles. Not just fancy sayings. They considered it a joy. They considered themselves blessed that they were able to shed their blood on account of the name of Jesus. Friends, when we understand and when we get a glimpse and a taste of that kind of suffering, and what it does... And it produces in us a thankfulness to be able to be counted as one who would suffer the name of Christ. All the petty stuff becomes petty stuff. All the little stuff gets, gets minimized. What about us, church? Do we consider it an honor to suffer on account of the name? Notice, too, I think this should go without saying, but we should say it, maybe. They weren't just suffering They weren't just being opposed because they were a bunch of knuckleheads. Because they were out causing trouble. We may suffer in this world, and you may already be suffering in this world because of stuff you've done. Because of bad decisions. Because of things that you've brought into your life that were sinful choices. Friends, they were suffering on account of the name. What about us, church family? Are we there? Do we count it a joy? Would we leave here this morning rejoicing that God considered us worthy to suffer on account of his name? And it's precisely there when we're given that God-ordained opportunity to show our love for him. And come at us with insults, with mockery, or even physical violence. Bring it on. Jesus said this would happen. I count a joy that he would allow me to suffer for his name. I must rejoice that Jesus let us live out even difficult times under the banner of, of the gospel and the cross that he's given his life for us. So as we close this morning, we see an example of this in an old hymn. Some of you will remember this old hymn. If you would, grab your hymnals out of the pew. Now, we don't do that very often, but uh, open up to 565. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, You you don't want me to, but I want you to read it with me because we see an example of this, hymn 565. When you get there, you'll see a hymn titled, So Send I You. Some of you will remember that hymn from back in the day, and it comes from the words of Jesus. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Right. The hymn was written by Margaret Clarkson, who lived in the last century. If you notice on page 565, that first verse, there are some delightful words. If you'll read the first verse, uh, as I read out loud, just read along with me. So send I you, by grace made strong to triumph, over hosts of hell, over darkness, death and sin, my name to bear, and in the name to conquer, so send I you my victory to win. If you look closely at the bottom of the page, you'll see there's a date, copyright date of 1963. Many of you may not know this. Even if you know the song, you may not know its history, That there's an earlier version. In 1954, Margaret wrote a different version of this song. It was the one originally published, the earlier version. The first verse is not even in your hymnal, but I'll read it to you. It's a little bit different. In 1954, nine years before, the version you're holding, she said this, So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, and unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing, so send I you to toil for me alone. Sounds pretty depressing, doesn't it? But it's true. Margaret Clarkson, a schoolteacher who suffered from many physical ailments, Especially in her latter years, she had crippling arthritis, even though she herself was a missionary. She suffered through with physical ailments the call that God had placed on her life. And she got it. Even in 1954, the earlier version that you don't have in your hands, she understood the bad news, right, quote unquote. She understood that there would be suffering in this life. To to name the name of Christ, to live high the banner of the gospel, would bring opposition in your life. She understood that. But in 1963, it dawned on her. She missed the good news, or at least she didn't articulate it as best she could have. And so she wrote the version that you're holding. She missed the triumph that comes in suffering. Yes, there will be suffering, but yes, it's worth it. And the end is not futile. It's not for nothing. It's not for naught. There is triumph in the gospel. And so, yes, we suffer scorn and scoffing and rebuke, but by grace, when we suffer in Christ, the outcome is victory. The outcome is triumph. We're lifted up by grace to conquer. And so in the 1963 version, you you see she really got it. She really got it that though there's difficult times, though there's opposition and hostility, the gospel wins. Jesus has won the victory. He's already defeated our greatest enemy. So no matter what comes in this world, we win. And she got it. And I pray today that we get it. That you and I here today, considering the cost of following Christ, we would understand and follow all the more. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ and you're weighing it right now, should I be a follower of Christ? Count the cost, consider the cost. And know today that, that by following Christ, you're not choosing the easy path, but you're choosing the only path that ends in victory and triumph. And anything that it costs you in this life will be but a speck on the timeline of eternity. It's worth it. And what we see ultimately is that Gamaliel was right. You'll not be able to stop these men. If this thing is of God, you won't be able to stop these men. He gives the two examples that that had happened in years past. They died. Their followers are no more. They dispersed. There's no religion today around these men because it was not of God. Nothing came of it. But he was right. If this thing is of God, you'll not be able to stop these men. And they didn't. And no one ever will. To the glory of his grace and mercy, he won't be stopped. Let's pray together.